please remain standing for prayer. Brother Dale, would you lead us in prayer this morning? Please be seated. And if you would, turn in your Trinity uh, hymnal to hymn number 599, The Sands of Time.
Turn, if you would, please, to Revelation chapter 9 in our consecutive reading. Revelation chapter 9. Here we see the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments. We see the releasing of locusts from the bottom, bottomless pit turn loose to torment men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they do this for five months to kill a third of mankind. We also see the releasing of the four fallen angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates with their armies of 200 million soldiers. And so we see these things uh, that, uh, and in fact, it's been said that um, chapter 9 here is the dark side of the light chapter, which precedes it, which would be 105. This is uh, a, a dark, a dark uh, chapter. Beginning at verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails is their power to hurt men for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he has the name Apollyon. And both of those words stand for destroyer. The first woe is past, and behold, two woes are still coming after these things. The sixth trumpet, 
Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels had been prepared for the hour, and the day, and the month, and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and of hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither, neither see nor hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. So even after all of that, they still don't repent. And it's so typical even in today's age where God has provided blessing after blessing to America. And, and yet we continue down that road of sin, failing to repent. And the time will coming, is coming when our Lord God will say, in effect, that's enough. That's enough. Well, let's go to prayer this morning, and as we pray, we, we want to remember the, the uh, Albany Baptist Church, Pastors Sarville and Hill in Albany, New York. And we also want to pray for the persecuted uh, church. We pray for Central African Republic. Uh, we will also pray for uh, Mark. Bauer as he comes to preach this morning and for Micah Smith and uh, we especially want to keep Pastor Walden and his family in our prayer and so let's take these things to the Lord Heavenly Father we again we just thank you and praise you for your goodness to us in, in abundance we thank you, Lord, for all the tender mercies and graces which you pour upon us that go unthanked. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for your mighty power. We thank you, Lord, for your sovereignty. For though it sometimes does not feel like it, we know that your word says that you are on the throne even now and that you are working in the lives of your children. And so, Father, we are so grateful, and we take this time now to lift you up and to praise you 
and to glorify your holy name. We thank you, Lord, for your holiness. We thank you, Lord, that you are the Lord God Almighty, the one true living God, and there is no other. We thank you, Lord, for your immensity. You are in control of every molecule in the universe, and yet a sparrow does not fall out of a tree, lest you know. So, Father, we ask this morning that you would forgive us our sins, which are many and and are wicked. For we are a sinful people, and we deserve nothing of your goodness. We do not deserve your love nor your forgiveness, but Father, in your grace and in your mercy, you have saw fit to to sacrifice your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross at Calvary and be buried for three days and on the third day to be raised again to life. And Father, that is where our hope lies in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So, Father, we thank you for that, and, and we just ask, Lord, that you might be pleased to, to have a revival here in this nation that might sweep forth and claim many souls for your kingdom. We pray, Father, for our leaders. We pray for President Biden. Vice President Harris, we pray, Father, for our legislature, our Congress. We pray for the Supreme Court. We pray for the governor of the state of Michigan this morning. We pray for local authorities. Father, these things were ordained of you, that there might be order, that evil might be suppressed, punished, and that we would be able to live our lives in peace and security. So, Father, we would ask that you would bring these men, many of them, unto the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might turn from manly wisdom to godly wisdom in the running of this nation. But, Father, we know that you are in charge of all nations. And so we thank you for that. And, and, Lord, we would ask that you would bless the Albany Baptist Church and Albany, New York, and Pastor Sarver and Hill. We thank you for their ministries. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your provision for them. We thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless them, to lead them and guide them in your loving wisdom. Father, we do pray for Central African Republic and the persecution of Christians and new converts in that place. We pray, Father, that your word would go boldly forward, that many would come to know the Savior in that dark place. We thank you, Lord, for Pastor Calvin and his faithfulness to this place. We would pray, Father, that you would bless him as well as Trish and Sybil, Clarissa, Shane. Uh, We pray that uh, you would bless Jonathan and Emily. 
We pray, Father, that you would relieve them of their illness, that you would again bring them to full health, and that their testimony might bring honor and glory to your name. We pray this morning for Gloria Bishop. And Father, we know not what hour that you might bring her home, but Father, we pray that in the meantime that you would bless her by filling her heart full of your peace. Comfort her, strengthen her, fill her indeed with joy as she looks forward to going to her true home and seeing the face of her Lord and Savior. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen and and bless Mac and Mac Jr. and Paula and Pam. Pray that you would bless that family as they gather together. Uh, And again, we pray, Lord, if there's anyone in that family who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask, Lord, that you would use this event, this time in their life, to bring them to yourself. We We pray for Adam and Joy in Florida and ask, Lord, that you would bring healing to Joy. Pray that you would help Adam as a caregiver and as a loving husband. We pray, Father, for the Perrys. We ask, Lord, that you might bring healing to Lisa as she battles COVID. We thank, Father, of Jimmy. And we know that he would love to be here this morning as he is always faithful to come to church and and he loves being here and, and listening to your word preached. And we ask, Lord, that you would draw near to Jimmy this morning and bless him. Be with Mara James as she uh, has times of uh, feeling better and then there are times when she, she feels uh, ill. And so, Lord, we ask that you would draw near to her. Father, be with the officers as they meet on the 25th. Guide them in, in uh, wisdom. Pray that you will bless the Sunday school teachers as we look forward to bringing God's word to our children beginning in October, if that be your will. We do pray for our children and our young people this morning and ask, Lord, that you would bless them, that you might give them a desire to hear your word and to be obedient to what they are, what they are, are taught. We pray, Father, that they would live lives, long lives, in service unto you. We pray, Father, for the unity and love among our own congregation. We pray for our unsaved loved ones and ask, Lord, that you would help us to be instruments that will bring the gospel to them. Again, we ask that you would be with Mark Bauer this morning and with Micah Smith this afternoon. We look forward to to hearing what they have for us. And again, Father, we just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you turn now to your Trinity hymn book and hymn number 118. Hymn number 118. If you're able, please stand.
Brother Mark? Well, good morning to everyone. I bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church of Canton. And I must say it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. And as I was thinking about what message I might bring to you today, there was a a passage that meant a lot to me over these last year and a half. Uh, It really was a comfort to me. It really brought encouragement to me. And so I hope it brings encouragement and comfort to you today. That passage is found in 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you would, please turn with me there. 1 Peter chapter 1. And the verses I'd like to read for you today is verses 3 through 9. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, we read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, may please join with me as we pray for God's help as we open up this passage this morning. Our dear God and Father, we bow before you again this morning, and Lord, we confess our, our desperate need of you. We need your help, Lord, to understand your word, to understand your truth, to be able to apply it rightly to our lives. But we thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that you have not left us to our own devices and our own uh, understanding of what is going on around us, but you have given us your word to guide and to direct us and to help us to understand what your will is for our lives and to see how you are accomplishing your purposes in all that is taking place in the world around us. We thank you for that word of God, and we pray that even this morning as we we look at these verses, Lord, that you might use these words to encourage us and to comfort us and to even bring us joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so do you ever feel like you're a stranger in this world around us? The world at times may seem so very foreign to you, does it not? The lifestyles that are being promoted, they're so very different than the lifestyles that we as God's people seek to live. More and more, the people of this world, 
They not only tolerate a sinful lifestyle and behavior, but they even celebrate it. Celebrate those who practice them. And they even set them before us as people that we should look to as examples for us to live our lives. But as Christians, we seek to live our lives according to God's word. But the world is pressuring us, is it not? It's pressuring us to conform to the things of this world. And I believe that we can, we can expect that that pressure will continue. And as it does so, I think we will see that at times persecution will come. Quoting from Ted Donnelly, he says this, Believers today are a minority under siege. The world resists us and persecutes us. As Christians, we know that we are not of this world, that we are just passing through. We are sojourners. And as sojourners, I believe that we share much in common with the recipients of Peter's letter from 1 Peter Peter that we read today. These Christians were described as exiles. They were not in their home. They were living in a foreign land. And as a result, they were different from the people that were around them. And because they were different, at times they often suffered trials and persecution. C.H. Spurgeon, commenting on 1 Peter chapter 1, writes this. He says this, that the persons whom Peter addressed were in great need of comfort. They were strangers, strangers scattered far from home. They had in consequence to suffer manifold trials and therefore needed plenteous consolations. Such is our position in a spiritual sense. We too are strangers and foreigners. We are pilgrims and sojourners below. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we require also a word of comfort. Well, then what word of comfort does Peter write to these exiles? Well, I believe in his letter, Peter sought to bring comfort to these exiles by reminding them that as God's people, they have a hope. But their hope is not the hope that's based on the things of this world. No, their hope is not that maybe one day I'm going to return to my homeland. Their hope is not that maybe one day I'll get more things or maybe more money. Their hope is not even that one day I will not suffer persecution any longer. No, their hope is in Christ. Their hope is in Christ who is their living hope. So today I would like to have us look at the blessings of our living hope, which are described in 1 Peter chapter 1. And as we do so, I hope that they bring comfort to you and encourage you and maybe even bring joy to your heart. Well, as we consider this passage, I suggest that we follow the following outline. First, let us look at the provision of our living hope. Secondly, let's look at the blessings of our living hope. Then thirdly, let us look at the joy we have due to our living hope. And then finally, a few applications from the text. First then, the provision of our living hope. In our text we read this, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And as I read these words, to be born again, I'm sure that, like many of you, it reminds you of what your past condition was. We were all born dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Every one of us, everyone in this world has this in common, do we not? No matter what the circumstance is that you were born into, 
whether you were born in this country or born in another country, whether you were born into a family with great wealth or born into a family that was deeply impoverished, whether you had great privilege or you suffered great oppression. All of us have this in common. We were born dead. We were spiritually dead. We were born dead to the things of God. We had no interest in God. We were following the course of this world. We were following after our own pleasures, seeking how we might satisfy the passions of our flesh, how that we might fulfill the desires of our body and our mind. This was our desperate condition. We were spiritually dead, and and it wasn't that we were just a little bit sick and we needed a little bit of help. No, we were dead, absolutely dead. And as we know, a dead man can do nothing to help himself. And as a dead man, we were hopeless. But in our text we read, but God, God intervened. It is God who caused us to be born again. It is God who took the initiative. It is God who made us alive and gave us spiritual life. It is God who caused us to be regenerated and brought us from death to life. If it were not for God's action in bringing us to life, we'd still be dead today. And when we were dead, we had no hope. But because of what God has done for us, we now have hope. And what is the reason for this? Well, Peter gives us the reason for God doing this. He tells us it's according to his great mercy. It was mercy, unmerited, undeserved, not because of anything on us. It was God's mercy, pure and simple. It was God's mercy. It was a great mercy, for we were great sinners, were we not? And his great mercy is a mercy that can save us to the uttermost, no matter what our past sins may have been. So we see here that it is God. God is the one that provides us our living hope. It is all of God. He is the one that has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And our living hope that we have, it's not the type of the hope that the world has. No, the world's hope is a very iffy hope, is it not? How often do you hear people say, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. You know we're going to have a picnic. Or maybe they say, hey, I'm interviewing for a job. I hope I get that job. Or I hope I, whatever, fill in the blank. Their hope is uncertain, but not our living hope. No, our living hope is a confident expectation that we have. Our living hope is not wishful thinking. Our living hope is based on facts. First, um, in First Peter, Peter writes this. He says, our living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I believe in this statement we are appointed to two things. We are appointed to Christ's death and his resurrection as the basis for our hope. First, we have the fact of Christ's death. It is a fact that Christ died. He died on the cross. And by his death, he paid the debt that was due. We are all sinners, are we not? And because of our sin, we have a penalty that we must pay. No matter how little our sin is or how great our sin is, we all are subject to the penalty of death. And it doesn't matter how good you are. 
No, you can do all the good things in the world, but that will never cancel out the debt that you owe. It will never clear that balance sheet. Because of our sin, it was necessary that someone must die. And Christ is the one who died. He's the one that died for us, the just for the unjust. But secondly, we know that we have a living hope because of the fact of Christ's resurrection. It is the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. He is no longer in the grave. He has risen victorious. And by his resurrection, we know that Christ has conquered sin and death. Christ is alive. Our Savior is not dead. He is alive. And he lives forevermore. And I think that's why, as we're pointed to our hope, it's described as a living hope. Because Christ is alive and lives forevermore. Christ is our living hope. So as we look at the provision of our living hope, we see that it is God who is the one that provides our living hope. A living hope that is certain, provided through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then secondly, let us consider just two of the blessings that we have because of our living hope. You might recall that Peter is writing this letter to exiles. And as exiles, they are suffering from trials and persecutions. And I'm certain that oftentimes these exiles are suffering from verbal persecutions, that they're receiving insults, being slandered, being reviled. And oftentimes I'm sure that they're suffering because of their good behavior. They're seeking to live a godly life. They're not participating in many of the sinful acts and practices of the Gentiles that surround them. But no, they suffer persecution, verbal persecution because of that. But even more at times I... I believe that they've suffered from physical persecution, even beatings, and at times threats of death. So for these exiles, how do these words bring comfort to them? Well, I believe that these words remind God's people that they have blessings because of their living hope. So first I'd like us to look at the blessing of eternal life. As God's people, we know we've put our faith in Christ. By his death on the cross, dying a substitutionary death, taking our punishment, absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved. By our faith in what he accomplished on our behalf, we now have a confident expectation of eternal life. Christ, our living hope, he gives us hope of eternal life. And though we may die, and it is true that many of us, most of us will, will die a physical death, Yet we do not need to fear death any longer because we are not like those in this world who have no hope. No, we have a living hope. We have a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ was raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we know as a first fruit, we have a promise that there will be more fruits that will come. And we too will one day rise as he did. In 1 Corinthians 15, we read this. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. The resurrection of Christ gives us a confident expectation that we one day too shall rise. And when we rise from the dead, we shall rise to immortality. 
we will have eternal life, never to die again. Christ, our living hope, he gives us a confident expectation of the blessing of eternal life. But then secondly, we also have a blessing of an inheritance. Remember that Peter is writing to God's people who are exiles. They're sojourners. They are living in a land that is not their final home place. It's a temporary home. They've not reached their final home yet. And Peter encourages these exiles by pointing them to the fact that they have a future blessing of an inheritance that awaits them. It's described as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. Speaking of this inheritance, one commentator puts it this way. He says that God's purpose in extending his grace to sinners is not only to save them from eternal judgment, but to make them part of his family through adoption and thus heirs of the promise. Think of it. We who were once dead in our sins, we who were enemies of God, he, we, we were dead. We are now, though, children of God. We have been adopted into God's family. And as God's children, we are heirs, heirs with Christ. And as heirs, we have an inheritance that awaits us. And think of this inheritance that awaits us. It's an inheritance that is more certain than any inheritance that anyone here on earth might have. No matter how wealthy that person may be, their earthly inheritance is uncertain. For we know that earthly inheritances, we don't know whether they will be there at the time when we are due to receive that inheritance. Right? You may be the recipient looking forward one day to an inheritance, let's say, of a house. Right? So there's a house awaiting you. But you have no guarantee that house will be there when it's time to receive it. A fire may burn it down. You have no guarantee. Or perhaps you're anticipating an inheritance of financial wealth. Financial wealth often is bound up in investments. And if any of you know the stock market, you have no guarantee with the stock market. It may go up, it may go down, and that wealth may be gone. Or perhaps, perhaps, you may never receive it because someone may just steal it or you never know. We have no guarantee that we will live to that point when we receive our inheritance, our earthly inheritance. It's possible we may die before we ever obtain it. Jesus told us that treasures on earth can be subject to moth and rust that destroy or thieves that may break in and steal. Our earthly inheritance is uncertain. But contrasted to that uncertain earthly inheritance, we see a certainty of our heavenly inheritance. That heavenly inheritance is described in our text by three words. Peter says that our heavenly inheritance is imperishable. Contrast that to an earthly inheritance for a moment. We know that an earthly inheritance, it's temporary. It will not last. One day it will perish. But not so with our heavenly inheritance. No, our heavenly inheritance, it will never perish. It is everlasting. It is eternal. It will never end. But secondly, our our heavenly inheritance is described as being undefiled. 
We know that everything here on earth is defiled by sin. It's tainted by sin. And any earthly inheritance that you might receive is defiled. But not so for our heavenly inheritance. It is undefiled. It is without sin. It has no blemish. It has no defect. There is no stain of sin. It is pure, absolutely pure. It is holy. But then, thirdly, our heavenly inheritance is described as unfading. Contrast that to an earthly inheritance. And although we know at times things may last for a long time, but eventually they begin to lose their luster. Their brightness will fade away eventually. They will fade away. But not our heavenly inheritance. No, our heavenly inheritance will never fade. It will never lose its glory. As God's children, we have been born again. We are heirs. And we look forward to one day receiving an inheritance that awaits us, a heavenly inheritance. It's far better than any earthly inheritance, a heavenly inheritance that will be glorious. But to further increase the certainty that we can have that one day we will receive these blessings, Peter reminds us that we are guarded by God's power. The term guarded, most commentators view that as a military term. It reminds us that, are we not? We are in a spiritual battle. Satan, he wants to destroy us as God's children. But thankfully, it's God who guards us. And God, he never slumbers. He never sleeps. He is always on the alert to the attacks of Satan. And he protects us from all of our enemies. And though at times we may be weak, we know that he is strong. We know that God's power is greater than all. And like a shepherd that guards his sheep, Jesus, the good shepherd, has promised that I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And he further goes on to say this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. There is none greater than God. He has supreme power. It is God that is holding us and no one can snatch us out of his hand. It's because of God's power that we have certainty. Certainty that we have been kept secure, secure by God's preserving power. But as God guards us by his power, it's interesting to see that his power is also working through our faith, faith in Christ. We see that our faith is working along with God's power. In a commentary by Leighton and Thomas, we read this. Faith is the second reason for our preservation since it relates to the first, which is God's power. Our faith takes hold of God's power, and his power strengthens our faith, and so we are preserved. I think of it that as as we look at God's word, and as we understand even more that it is by God's power that we are being preserved, I believe that that truth, that power that we see there, that power that will ensure that we will not fall away, that truth in turn strengthens our faith, does it not? And as it does so, it increases our faith, our faith in Christ. In John Piper's book on providence, he puts it this way. God awakens our faith again and again and so guards us from the destruction of unbelief and sins. And do we not need our faith to be strengthened day by day? Are we not so often tempted by sin and at times oppressed by Satan's attacks 
Attacks that sometimes may even cause us to question and doubt our future salvation. But no, God is working. He is working, as it were, behind the scenes to enliven our faith and to help us to continue to trust in Christ. It makes me think of the scene in Pilgrim's Progress in the interpreter's house. You may remember how as Christian went in, he saw a fire burning against the wall and he saw someone who was there that was casting water on that fire to seek to quench it. But that fire did not quench. No, it burned brighter and hotter. And when Christian asked the interpreter, how can this be? How is it possible? The interpreter took him around the back of the wall and he showed him a man, Christ, who had a vessel of oil in his hand who was continually pouring that oil into the fire to keep it burning. Likewise, it is Christ who strengthens our faith. And as he does so, he's continually providing fuel, fuel to the fire of our faith. Well, may it be that God even help us to continue by his power to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But then thirdly, let us consider the joy that we have because of our living hope. Looking back at our text, we read this beginning in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Peter tells his readers, In this you rejoice. And I believe that the this he is referring to are the truths that he just described in the preceding verses, in verses 3 through 5. The truths that we have been born again, born again to a living hope, a living hope that gives us a confident expectation of eternal life, a confident expectation that one day we will have an inheritance in heaven, blessings that are being guarded by God. And as we look forward to these future blessings, This should give us joy. In this, we should rejoice. And these truths, they should help us even now to have joy, even though if now we must encounter trials, because we know that trials will come. God's word is realistic. He doesn't sugarcoat trials. No, he tells us, you know, as Christians, you're not going to float through this life of, you know, in ease, with your head in the clouds, with never, no problems. No, trials will come. And Peter warns us in his text, when the, these trials come, at times these trials will be grievous. All kinds of trials we may experience, emotional trials, physical trials, sometimes a combination of both. And as we experience these trials, these trials bring pain. They bring suffering. They bring sorrow. But to help us, Peter reminds us that these trials are but, first of all, just but for a little while. And I know that when we're in the midst of a trial, it might seem like it's never going to end, right? It seems like it's going to go on and on. And I know and I realize that in some cases, trials may last a lifetime. But when we compare this to eternity, the eternity that awaits us, we know that these trials are but for a moment. But secondly, we know that 
the trials that God brings into our lives have a purpose. By God's sovereign plan, he brings trials into your life, into my life, that are designed specifically for us. And as he does so, these trials test the genuineness of our faith. Peter uses the example of gold. If you're familiar with refining gold, gold is placed into a fire. The reason, so it will remove impurities. So too, by God's providence, he puts us into the fires of trials at times to test our faith, to prove it, to confirm that it's genuine, and to remove impurities that may be still there. And as a result of this testing of our faith, it is ultimately to strengthen our faith so that we might praise and give glory and honor to Jesus Christ at his revelation. And certainly, as we rejoice in all these blessings we just looked at, the blessings of eternal life, the blessings of an inheritance, Peter tells us there is yet but a future, even greater joy that the Christian can, can look forward to. In verse 8, Peter writes this, speaking of Christ. He says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I hope that as God's people, we should have a joy that is fueled by our love for our Lord Jesus Christ, our living hope. And though we do not see him right now, We still love him, do we not? We have a love for our Savior, for we know what he has done for us. He's died and suffered in our place. But imagine what it is if we love him now without seeing him. Imagine that one day when we do see him and we see our Savior. When Christ returns, what a joy that will bring to our heart, a joy that is inexpressible a joy that is far greater than any joy you will ever experience here on earth. This will be our greatest joy. Knowing Christ as our Savior and the hope that one day, one day we will see him and we will be with him forever. Well, then how do these things apply to our lives today? What lessons can we learn from this? What response do you have right now to what we've read from 1 Peter? C.H. Spurgeon preached a message on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and he says this, He likens the blessings of salvation to a string of pearls, a necklace of diamonds, a cabinet of jewels. And just picking up for a moment that image of a diamond, I hope we see that the blessings that we have because of our, of our living hope, we see as though these are, these are gifts that God is giving to us, gifts that are two beautiful diamonds. Because of our living hope, we have the blessing of a diamond of eternal life and a diamond of an inheritance that awaits us. And if you've ever bought a diamond, you know when you go into the jeweler, they try to tell you how you understand the quality of that diamond. And they say, well, first you need to notice it's cut. And as you look at that cut, you can see how the light will sparkle in the brilliance of that diamond. Then also they say you need to look at the color of that diamond, or more accurately, the absence of color. There should be no color. 
There should be no tinge of yellow or brown in that diamond because if there's an absence of color, it has greater value. And then next they say, look at, look at the clarity of that diamond. There should be no imperfections in that diamond. Whether it's on the surface or deep in the diamond, no, there, there should be an absence of imperfections. And then finally he talks about the carrot, the weight. Well, as we look more closely at the diamonds of our eternal life and our inheritance, I suggest that as we look more closely at these, I think they share some similar qualities. First, there's the quality that they both are imperishable. When we are raised to eternal life, we will have resurrected bodies. We will have a life that will never end. We will be immortal. And that eternal life will be a life in which we can then enjoy an inheritance, an inheritance that is likewise never-ending, an inheritance that is imperishable. So we see that both our eternal life and our inheritance have the quality of being everlasting. But then secondly, we can see that both share the quality of being undefiled. When we are raised to eternal life, we will never sin again. No, we will be without sin. We will be holy and pure and blameless. No longer struggling with remaining sin. No, one day we will be perfect. And so too our future inheritance. Our future inheritance is absolutely pure, absolutely holy. There is no sin. There is no sorrow in our heavenly inheritance. There will be no more tears, no more pain. They both share the quality of being undefiled. But then finally we see that they both share the quality of being unfading. Our eternal life, our future inheritance, they both possess a glory, a glory that will never fade away. And I realize at times it's really hard to grasp just the value of these qualities while we're here on this earth. We don't fully appreciate it at times. But to help us have a greater appreciation for the beauty and the value of these diamonds of our future eternal life and our future inheritance, Peter contrasts those against the dark background of our past condition. He reminds us we were dead. Remember this. Don't ever forget it. You were dead in sin. You were in bondage to Satan. You had no hope. You were destined, think of this, we were all destined to eternal damnation. But if it were not for God and what he did, God who gave us this gift, this gift of eternal life, this gift of an inheritance through our living hope. And as we think of this great gift that God has given us, how do you respond? Is it just, oh, well, I'm thankful for this gift. Well, I hope that's not your response. I hope it stirs up in each of us a a desire to bless and praise our God. God who is the one that has given us this gift. He has given us a gift that we did not deserve. He did it absolutely because of his mercy, because of his love for us. So I'm hopeful that we can join Peter and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then... Also, as we think of how does this apply to our life right now, I hope we see that our living hope should bring us joy. 
So what, what brings you joy? What do you drive joy from? Oftentimes it's just bound up in earthly pleasure, is it not? And I've got to admit that some of these earthly pleasures are legitimate. That's fine. But at times some of these earthly pleasures are sinful. But the reality is none of them are lasting. They may be here today and they will be gone tomorrow. It's far too easy, is it not, for us to get our attention caught up in the things of this world. I know that in the past couple in the past two years, we get bound up in all that's happening around us. We see the sin of our nation. We see all these things that are happening. It's so pervasive at times. It's overwhelming at times. It can be discouraging at times. It can drag us down, can it not? And if we start to focus on these things, it can be so very depressing. But no, that is not what our hope is. It's not in this world. No, we need to shift our focus away from the things of this world to our living hope. Because in this we can rejoice. Remember, this world is not all there is. Remember that life is short. Eternity awaits. We need to turn our eyes away from the things of this world and turn our eyes to our living hope. And by focusing in on our living hope, it brings us a confident expectation of the future, a hope that one day we will have an inheritance, an inheritance that awaits us. Think of it. This is not all there is to our lives. One day we will have an inheritance that is right now being kept for us. It's secure. It's our eternal home. This is where we will one day spend eternity. It's an inheritance that we will enjoy with perfect resurrected bodies for all of eternity. We will not have sin. We will be able to worship and praise our Savior without any tinge of sin. Even now, even if you are going through trials, we need to stay focused on that living hope and the knowledge of the blessings that we will one day have. And even in our trials, Peter tells us that this should bring us joy. No matter how grievous the trials may be that we experience, remember this, our greatest enemy, death, eternal punishment, has been conquered by Christ. And because of our living hope, we have this confident expectation of eternal life and our inheritance. This should not only help us to endure the trials that we experience, but even to rejoice as we anticipate what awaits us. And therefore, in this life, whatever trial may come our way, we can be both sorrowful because there is truly pain and suffering in trials, but yet we can also have joy, joy as we look to the future, blessings, Our joy is not focused on the things of this world. No, our joy is focused on the things of heaven, blessings that are everlasting. But then, finally, before I close, just remember that these blessings of our living hope are reserved for God's people. And remember that the world does not have this hope. The people of this world are hopeless. They need a Savior. They need Christ. They need a living hope. And I don't know who is here this morning. I don't know whether you already have that living hope and are putting your faith in him or not. But if you're not, if you have not put your faith and trust in Christ, if you have not put your hope in him, 
I urge you today, put your hope in Christ. Because think of it, the, the hope you're putting, if it's in the things of this world, they're going to fade away. They'll be gone. And one day you will stand before God. And he will judge you. And if you have not Christ, what will your hope be? You can be certain of eternal punishment. Well, I pray that God would maybe, even this morning, turn a heart to him, to turn their heart. If you have, do not know the Lord, turn your heart to our Savior. Well, let us close in prayer. Our dear God and Father, we do thank you for this amazing provision of a living hope. We thank you that you did not leave us in sin, but that you caused us to be born again, born again that we might have a living hope. And because of that living hope, we know that one day we have an expectation that we will have eternal life, that we will be raised from the dead and we will be able to enjoy an inheritance that awaits us. And even more so, we will be able to see you, see our Savior, and to be able to worship and praise him forevermore. And we pray, Father, that, again, if there's any here today that do not know you, that do not know Christ, we pray that they might see their need of, a, of Christ, they might see their need of a living hope. And we pray, Father, that you might work in their hearts this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you, Mark. What a wonderful, blessed assurance that we have, a, a, an assurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn with me, if you would, to hymn, and, uh, hymn number 226 in the Trinity hymn book, hymn 226. Please stand.
Well, if you're able to stay for lunch, we, we're glad to have you. And uh, we'll meet back here at 145 for our afternoon service.